We're in 1 Samuel 15. We do expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible. We're up to chapter 15 in 1 Samuel. There are Bibles in the back. I cannot and will not put up all the verses. Some of the verses will be up there. Uh, Some of them will not. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. If you don't own one, take it. It's yours, our gift to you. But we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We left off in chapter 14 last week. We'll do something a little differently. I'm going to just do an introduction, and then I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, rather than going through it piece by piece. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and then we'll jump right into the three headings for this morning. So, what we've been seeing over and over in Samuel, in the, the narrative of 1 Samuel, King of Kings is our sermon series, is number one, just a couple things I want to mention before we jump into the text. Number one, Israel's new and first king was a man that was anointed by the prophet Samuel as directed by God. And Samuel has been over and over trying to teach the king that he still must submit to the king of kings. That although he's the king of Israel, he's the, he's the, he's the leader of the monarchy, He is to listen to the voice of God through the prophet of God. And Samuel is trying to teach King Saul that over and over again. We'll see it again today. Number two, King Saul was anointed and given instructions to fight. That's what he does. They fight God's enemies. That's what kings do. They fight the enemies of God. Chapter 11, he fights the Ammonites. Chapter 13, 14, we ended last week, he fought the Philistines. And again, in chapter 15, they're in another war. That's what kings do. Number three, Although chapter 11, when King Saul fights the Ammonites, things went well. He really responded. He obeyed. It was a good chapter for him. But we've been saying ever since chapter 11, it's really been a a downward spiral for the king. Number four. We'll see this again today. Saul is in contrast to his firstborn son, Jonathan. We saw this before, that Jonathan, we said, was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted the Lord. He was a man who believed God. He was a man that no matter what the circumstance was, he was going to walk trusting God, trusting in God's promises that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is omnipotent, and he'll follow him wherever God will lead him. We saw that back in chapter 14. Yet King Saul, his father, was a man of the flesh. A man of the flesh. A person of flesh is someone who's living outside the will of God. He's separate from God's guiding influence of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's in the unregenerate state. He, is, he does not want what God wants. He wants to do what he wants to do. And we saw this contrast between Jonathan and his father, King Saul. Number four. What we've been seeing is that when Saul, the king, is confronted with his sin, with his disobedience, he gets all religious on us, right? He gets all religious on us. And religion is, I'm coming to God with my agenda. I want to offer him things on my terms so that then God will bless me and God will, will keep me and God will accept me. That's, that's religion. That's what we mean by religion. Religion is antithetical to the gospel, The gospel is God has first come to me, God in Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, completely obeyed the Father in word, deed, and motive, even unto death. And now I come with empty hands. (laughs) I come with no agenda. And I'm holy, W-H-O-L-Y, holy trusting in the finished work of Christ redeeming substitutionary sacrifice for my acceptance and and for my forgiveness. Playing religion is a way of, 
uh, is, is a prideful way of trying to keep control of your life. Doing things the way you want to do. Not submitting, not, con- not being controlled or relinquishing control to God. And here's a paradox of genuine faith. Paradox of genuine faith. You will never be completely free until you are completely submissive to King Jesus. You will never be completely free until you're completely submissive to King Jesus. Romans 6 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, there's your choice, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But be thanks to God that you were once slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, that's through Jesus Christ, through the cross, and now you become slave of righteousness. You want to do what's right. King Saul, we shall see, wants to obey God on his terms. He will lose his kingship. And he will be replaced by a man after God's own heart. His name is David, King David, who also in many ways will be disobedient. He will sin against God. That's because the whole story of Samuel and the kingships of Israel going from a theocracy to a monarchy is pointing to the greater king, the true and better king, the obedient king. His name is Jesus the Christ. The long-awaited king will destroy sin, will sit on the eternal throne of, of righteousness and establish an eternal kingdom. He will be the perfect king. That's what the kingship is about. So with all that in your mind, let's turn to 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to read this chapter to you. If you want to follow along, if not, just soak it in. But let me read to you the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Back to Kings. Back to King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15, hear the very word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, okay, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go. And strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So, Sam, so, excuse me, so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed among the, uh, from among the Malachites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur from the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul... And the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord, verse 10, came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself himself. 
and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me that night. And he said, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep, oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord has as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of ram. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That's why I dismissed the kids. When Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again till the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Interesting, huh? Anybody want to take a shot at this? <laughs> Last week we saw in the end of uh, chapter 14 this fight against the Philistines. Remember the king Saul put a, a silly, stupid vow before the people told him, don't eat. I know you've been battling all day, but don't eat. And he made this vow to them, and then when night fell and the vow was no longer bound, they were no longer bound to this, to this stupid vow that he made, 
Uh, they began to eat meat, remember? The steaks were very rare, had blood in it, and which violates the, the law of God. And at the end of the story, we read that the king found out that it was his own son, Jonathan, man of faith. It was his own son, Jonathan, who had broken the vow and had tasted some honey. And he said, let's kill him. The father wants to just kill his son for a hasty vow that he made uh, earlier. And at this point, the people of God had enough of, of King Saul's stupid religiosity and his vow in chapter 14, verse 45. After they had beaten the Philistines, the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan, Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. Not going to happen. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the peaceful ransom, and we talked about that last week, the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And the chapter closes with a summary, chapter 14 closes with a summary of Saul's military uh, career, his family, his lineage, his children, his firstborn John, uh, son Jonathan, his daughters, his cousin Abner, uh, the commander of the army. And then 14 closes this way in verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. We saw that that's what kings do. They were warned. As we jump now into chapter 15 with that introduction and the reading of God's word, there are three major things going on, three headings, three major things going on in chapter 15. And a simple outline is I just want to follow these three main headings and topics that are, that are being talked about in 1 Samuel 15. And that is simple, justice, obedience, and repentance. Okay, very simple. Justice, obedience, and repentance. Okay, number one, justice. As we read this war, as we read this war about the Amalekite, it's important to understand just a couple of things I want to mention to you. Number one, the reason we do expository preaching here at this church is because of chapter 15. I don't know how many pastors wake up in the morning and say on, on a Monday, go, let's preach 1 Samuel 15. They hack the king to little pieces. It'll be fun to talk about that on Sunday. Usually it doesn't happen, but... We grow, we push into the text, we, we're not afraid of the scriptures, we, we preach all of the Bible, the whole counsel of God. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God, it is profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes 1 Samuel chapter 15. And there were those who say, you know what, that's just a crazy story that shows you that God is not the author of Scripture, that man alone is the author. Well, I could show you from Scripture, I could show you from antiquity, I could show you from, from all kinds of things that the Old Testament is the very word of God. But what will trump, I'm sorry to use that word, but what will trump all the reasons why we believe the Old Testament is the word of God, what puts all of it to rest, all the arguments to rest is a great theologian by the name of Jesus Christ said the Old Testament was the word of God. End of story. Argue till the day comes home, no, till the cows come home. Jesus said so. He said in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, one, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot, a smallest letter in the Hebrew, a tittle, a little extension, a pen stroke. Jesus is saying, God has spoken, his words have been written down, and his fulfillment is inevitable. Jesus believed that the word of God, he fought the enemy Satan, thus saith the Lord, 
that the Bible, the Old Testament, particularly what we're talking about, is the word of God, including 1 Samuel 15. Verse 1. The word of God comes through the prophet of God, through the man of God. And Samuel comes to King Saul and says, listen, very simple, strike Amalek, the city, and devote to destruction everything. Don't spare a thing. Kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Take them out. The Amaleks, in the story of the Exodus and the period of the wandering, uh, the wilderness wandering, were known as cruel and hard people. They were without morals, they were without ethics in any kind of uh, dealings in warfare at all. Throughout history, the Amaleks were constantly provoking, attacking, um, um, uh, pillaging, provoking Israel. They, they, they were renowned for their excessive violence and their ruthlessness in dealing with people. Three times in the Old Testament, God says to, the, uh, to his people, the, Amal- the Amalekites, they're saying that over and over all day, has been killing me, the Amalekites are going to face judgment. Justice will come upon those people who are violent and ruthless. He said it in Exodus, he said it in Numbers, and he said it in Deuteronomy 25. Now that justice of God falls to the king, to King Saul, to to carry out the justice of God. And this makes the battle that Saul will rage against them very different from all the other battles we've seen. It's not a war against aggression. It's not self-defense. It's a war at God's command carried out as his judgment on his behalf. God said enough. He gives Saul the command to wipe everything out. And some people say that this, this language of destruction is what's called maybe a holy war. I, I don't believe that's the case. Uh, this is not a war of conquest. Family, it's very important we know that this is a war of justice. The goal of the attack was not to make Saul rich, not to make Saul king over the whole world, but to execute justice on a rebellious group of people. And we cannot and should not compare anything of this in the Old Testament as the Islamic jihad of today. Biblical warfare is not primary, primarily about people going out to fight in the name of God, but rather God going to fight on behalf of his people. And here's very, something very important we need to say, and I'm going to say it, uh, I think it needs to be said, I don't know if it applies to anybody here, but I'll say it. Divine warfare, rather than holy war, but a divine warfare is limited and non-repeatable. Let me say it again. Divine warfare is limited and non-repeatable. This is a war fought in a particular time in Israel and are neither to be repeated by the church or is justified by any peoples in the present world today. The church is not a state. The church is not a geopolitical organization or some sort of national power, national state with the power of the state to carry out the duties of the state. That's what's happening here. That is not today. The church cannot use Texas uh, narratives like 1 Samuel 15 to ground their obedience to Jesus in the world to go out to kill the infidels. Such an application is a radical departure of the teaching of God and Jesus Christ. But here, in a particular time, in a particular instance, God is bringing judicial vengeance that belongs to God alone. 
Now, there are some overlaps. We're not going to get into this overlaps between church and state. I get that. They have very different functions, very different roles. And one of the ways God reigns over evil, one of the ways he punishes evil, taking vengeance is through the state. Read Romans 13. It is not for us to do. The state at times is the temporal earthly exercise of the vengeance of God through the judicial means of the state. When we get those things mixed up, all kinds of confusion. But God is a, a God who Exodus says he's, he's slow to anger. He, he, is, he is patient, abounding in love and faithfulness. He nevertheless does not leave the guilty unpunished. Judicial vengeance is for the Lord. A divine judgment sometimes is impersonal like the flood. We like to see the stories with the children painting, you know, uh, we went through Genesis. You know, they got that little coloring book and there's Noah with his happy family and it's raining and, and they're just having a great time escaping the floods. No one shows the actual ocean and there are people floating in it. I don't want to see that part, but he flooded the world, took everyone out. Or Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a pers- impersonal. But then God, in his sovereign purposes, permits nations to be destroyed for their willful and incorrigible wicked acts. For hundreds of years, the Amalekites, listen, would take children, would take adults, would take babies, would take women, teenagers, and throw them into a fiery furnace on a daily basis in sacrifice of their false religious pagan systems. This is God bringing to pass in space and time his divine judgment. And and the application for us today is simple. The day of judgment will come. Against everyone who will die in their sins because they have rejected the only means of their salvation. It's a picture of that day. Those who never take shelter under the substitutionary, wrath-absorbing, justice-fulfilling, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ will stand and be judged. We are in a holy war. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. They're spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Our armor are spiritual armor, not physical armor. But they're no less real. It's a call of faith and obedience. Even battling our own sin in our own heart is real. It's just as deadly. And in the midst of this attack, in the midst of this picture of the day of judgment, look at verse 6. Saul gathers the army and what does he do? He shows mercy. To the Kenites. They showed mercy to God's people. Uh, you know, it reminded me of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. When he, when he describes all of mankind as being utterly broken, sinful, rebellious, living in the passions of our flesh. We're by children, Nathan, uh, children of wrath. We're by nature children of wrath. And then chapter 2, verse 4, but God. <laughs> but God being rich in his mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. Family, let this earthly vengeance be to us a reminder of the final ultimate vengeance when Christ, at the end of time, executes judgment on those who oppose him and brings salvation to those who take shelter under his cross. You say, well, that sounds, sounds a lot like a, the Old Testament God. All right, 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, New Testament. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. At the end of this age, there'll be a time and those who do not embrace Christ as Savior and Lord will be eternally separated from God. The narrative should remind us that God is and will always be judge of the earth. And that his, his judgments are always just, always right. He will always do what's right. Revelation 16, I heard an altar from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Family, this picture of the Amalekites is rough. No comparison if you die without Christ. No comparison if you have not faith in Jesus Christ, that you have not trusted him, his sacrifice, the judgment of our sins that he bore on the cross at Calvary, his empty tomb, his victory over sin, death, and the grave. Just a picture. doesn't compare to that day. See, the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners Nothing happened to them that will not happen to all sinners unless we place our faith and our hope in Christ. Because someday the world will be judged. And the judgment will far surpass this chapter. Trust Christ. Have your hope in Christ. Come under the shelter of Christ. Believe in his atoning work on the cross for your sins. The judgment he bore, the wrath he bore in your place and for your sins. And you will be forgiven and escape the justice of God. Because Jesus had borne it for you. Now look at obedience. Not only was this judicial justice in a place, time, and space, but this had to do with testing the king. Will you obey the voice of God? Again, in verse 1, it's pretty clear. Listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel is speaking to Saul. The prophet is speaking the word and the voice of God, actually literally in the Greek, in the Hebrew, the voice of the Lord. In fact, verse 1, the word listen means not only to receive information, right, to, to proclaim, to, to heed, and to pay attention to. So it, it's, it's getting information, but there's a sense in which listening is something that we are supposed to respond to on the basis of what we heard. Samuel is saying, listen, I'm announcing the very word of the Lord. I'm giving you clear directions. Listen. It's the same word in, in Deuteronomy 6.4, what's known as the Shema. A prayer that was given multiple times throughout the day of, for, the, for the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, respond. Drop down to verse 19. Samuel says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Literally, it is the word, listen. Why did you not listen to the word and the voice of God? Drop down to verse 20. Saul says, but I did. I did listen to the word, to the voice of God. Verse 22, Samuel said, Really? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. This is what's going on. Samuel says, You didn't listen. Saul says, I did listen. I, I, I listened to what you said. Samuel's like, Yeah, but you really didn't listen. You may have heard what I said, but you didn't listen. It never went from 
the word spoken into your ears, it never made it to your feet. You're, you're not listening. You're not obeying. You're not responding. If you have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. On one level, you hear, but you really don't hear. God has given you specific instructions, King Saul. Did you do what God told you to do? You see, to Saul, complete obedience is optional. It appears that he starts out obeying. He hears the call. He gathers and rallies his army. He defeats the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. But notice he spared Agag the king. He spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, the calves, the lambs. All that he thought was good. All that was despised and worthless, he devoted to destruction. But what did God tell him? Do not spare them. And, and then look, look at what God says in response to Saul's disobedience. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, the Lord speaking through Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, we don't have the reason why he cried or why he was so angry. I think it's safe to say that he was angry at sin as Jesus wept over sin. I think he was angry at the circumstances. I think he was angry at Saul for refusing to obey the voice of the Lord. I don't think Samuel disliked Saul. In fact, it'll say at the end that he was grieved over him. I think his anger was mixed with with very deep, very deep disappointment. Over and over, the prophet is teaching the king to submit to the word of the Lord that comes through the prophet. But he blows it in disobedience. And then Samuel comes to the king after he disobeys and reaches out his hand. And again, the religious overtones are very striking. Verse 13, Saul sees the Samuel, the prophet, and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandments of the Lord. Samuel said, Really? What then is this bleeding? Sheep, lowering of the oxen that I hear. Same word. Samuel is saying, I don't hear, I don't hear the voice of obedience. I hear sheep, the voice of disobedience. And right on cue, as we've seen before, the king makes excuses. Verse 15, well, they, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction, Drop down to 21, but the people took, again, looking to blame somebody, the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things, devoted to, sacri- devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In other words, Samuel, listen, we got all these beautiful and wonderful cows and, and animals. Man, we're going to have a worship party, man. Like, this is going to be a lot of fun, don't you think? I mean, come on, Samuel, we've got all this we've kept. You see, religiosity is is doing, acting, responding, ritualizing to cover up disobedience. That's all. It's it's, It's being religious rather than taking responsibility. Disobedience is any disobedience is anything less than full and immediate. Obedience. It grows out of selfishness. It grows out of greed. It distances us from God. It makes us warped in our thinking. So obedience is flexible, Saul. Look at uh, verse 16. I love it. Samuel, <laughs> Saul makes these excuses, and Samuel, and I can hear it now. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Verse 16. Stop. I'll tell you what the Lord 
Stop making your excuse. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Though you are little, verse 17, your eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you the king of Israel. Listen, you're supposed to lead. Right? Stop blaming others. The Lord told you, stop blaming people. Lead the people. Love the people. Verse 19, what you did was evil. Stop. Look at God, what God says through Samuel on Saul's religious and, and, and disobedience. He rejects him, verse 26 through 28. He rejects him as king. He had lost his dynasty. He said, your sons will not be king. Jonathan will not be king. And now he rejects him as king. He'll be king for a little bit longer, but we're going to run right into David now, next week. Look at verse 23. Look, look, what, look what God calls Saul's half-hearted obedience, verse 23. Rebellion. For rebellion is a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Religion, a heart bent on doing what it wants to do, is really act of wanting to do what Satan wants you to do. It's divination. Presumption, I know better. I know what God's word says. I know what the scriptures are teaching me. I know what the commands of God's are. But you know what? I know better for me. I know better for my family. I know better for my life. This makes me feel great, so I know it's good. That's presumption. Look what he says. It's sinful and idolatry. It, it places God, it removes God from his rightful place and places you in the place of God. It's idolatry. Calvin said man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Mark Dever comments on this. He says this, Saul takes God's word and he refashions it and says, well, that's better. <laughs> to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not that God does not want us to sacrifice. It's not that God doesn't want us to pray or give of our time, or give us of our money, or, or do the things we need to do. What he's saying is it's useless if there's known, cold, hard-hearted disobedience. Formal worship, formal rituals cannot be substituted for an obedient life. External devotions can't be substituted for internal submission. You see, Samuel helps us to see Sin, as God sees sin, paganism, and idolatry. Now let me make something really clear, lovingly clear. The people of God, followers of Jesus, children of the King, are responsible to, are expected to obey the Master. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. James said, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works, following, obeying the Lord, can that faith save him? The answer is no. But now listen. The obedience that God wants from us is the obedience of faith, the obedience of trust coming from a heart of love and of gratitude. It's an obedience that springs from the gospel, a heart that is in love with Jesus Christ. All your sacrifices are, are useless unless we're right with God through the gospel, the Bible studies, the songs being sung, the money donated, little old ladies you help across the street. We'll never do an obedient heart filled with faith and love can do. And here's the crux of the matter. Now listen, when God redeems you, when God rescues you, when God snatches you, when God gives you new birth, what else is he doing? Yes, he snatches us. Yes, he forgives us. Yes, he gives us eternal life. Yes, he gives us justification, the imputed righteousness of Christ on our behalf. We're forgiven of our sins, and we are imputed or counted in Christ for his righteousness. Yes, all well, that's true, but let me tell you, 
followers of Jesus Christ get a new heart. I thank God for a new heart. Because I never wanted to hear what God had to say until I had a new heart. Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, ultimately fulfilled in the coming kingdom. But now, that new heart, we experience what it means to walk and follow the king of kings. Have you experienced a change of heart? Has your disposition changed from rebellion of God to wanting and desiring to obey his plans, to follow his will? If you say, my heart has not been changed, I still don't want nothing to do with God. Listen, the scripture says examine yourself to see whether you're not in the faith or not. Test yourself, right? To obey even, or or should I say more accurately, when you fail, you still get up, try it again. We're not perfect, i make a couple of things really clear. We're not per- the only perfect one who will perfectly obey is Jesus the Christ. Only Jesus was perfect. We don't, listen, we don't obey the Lord to get his mercy and grace into our life. We obey the Lord because of his mercy and grace. Not to get it, but because we have it, right? That's, that's, that's the big difference. That is the, the, the major difference in our life. The moral law of God is and will always be just that, his clear will for us. But love, but the gospel, his mercy and grace that's been given to us by no merit of our own makes the moral standard of God, the obedient following of Jesus, not a burden. 1 John 5, I love this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not in order to, again, it's not to get his mercy and grace that we obey. We obey him because of his mercy and grace. So my wife's out on that retreat with uh, the other ladies. I said in the first service, I'm already have to buy flowers. But let's just say I decided to buy my wife flowers today, and I go to my home, and she comes home from, the, from her retreat with the ladies this weekend, and I hand her this bouquet of flowers, and I said, I just read in the Bible that the Bible said that I'm supposed to love you, that I'm commanded to love you, and that I'm obligated to love you. Here you go. <laughs> Won't go well. But, but if I come home and I say, I love you, I, I am so thankful for you, and that's true, I am, here you go with a heart full of loving affection, here. There's a big difference. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson in a book, The Whole of Christ, The Whole of Christ, W-H-O-L-E, he says this, our relationship to the law is not a bare legal one, coldly impersonal. No, our conformity to it is the fruit of our marriage to our new husband, Jesus Christ. There is only one cure for legalism and antinomianism against the law. Understanding, he says, and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself by faith alone. This leads to a new love, a new love for and obedience to the law of God, which he now mediates through the gospel, to us through the gospel. This alone breaks the bonds of both legalism and antinomianism. It now comes to us from the hand of Christ and in the empowerment of the Spirit who writes it in our hearts, end quote. Romans tells us in chapter 8, by sending his own Son in the likeness of flesh, 
And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Family, hear me carefully. You cannot obey your way into the grace and mercy of God. If you're trying, you're wasting your time. But what happens is when the mercy and grace of God come to us, In the gospel, when God accepts us and loves us because of the perfect obedience of Christ, and he redeems us and rescues us by grace alone, when you know that truth, there's loving obedience is the response. See the difference? You need to know that. Love and obedience is a response to the love of God already in the gospel. And I I didn't mention this in the first service, but I want to say this now. If you are obeying God to get his love, grace, and mercy into your life, it will get old, it'll get religious, and you'll become bitter, and you'll become resentful. Guaranteed. I don't know, a week, a month, a year, five years, and you'll walk away. It is because of what Christ has done. We humbly accept what he has done on our behalf. He loves us, accepts us, receives us, forgives us, and then we respond, follow you, Lord, where you go big difference. Please understand that. You see, the evidence of Saul's disobedience is all around. He can't escape it. So let me ask this question as we move on. Do we show up in worship services? We're willing to sing the song. We're thinking everything is okay, but we're in disobedience. It's all around us. Our spouse, our children, our roommate, our co-workers. No, we're not serious. There's been no heart change. It's, a, it's ridiculous. Yes, all of us have sinned, and yes, all of us are hypocrites from time to time. You're welcome. But what we do when the Holy Spirit confronts us is what's important. Listen, will it be met with hardened heart, dug in disobedience, or will it be met with confession and repentance or excuses and blame? That's the question. Saul lacks true repentance. He will play religion. He will harden his heart. David will sin. But the difference is David will repent. And be humble before the Lord. Calling you to be humble before the Lord. Obedience. Now repentance. Before we get into lack of, pre- uh, of repentance, we need, to, we need to deal with this issue. The word regret in your narrative, in verse 11, verse 29 and 35. Three, some of you translations, they change the word. It's the same Hebrew word. Chapter uh, 15, verse 11, verse 29 and verse 35. Some of you, if you have a King James, says repent. Obviously, it doesn't mean God repents from sin. God is holy. God is just. There is no sin in him, no deception in him, no darkness in him at all. The word means relent or change one mind. It's the same Hebrew word. And what's interesting is in verse 11 and verse 35, it says God regretted or God relented when he made king Saul, Saul king over Israel. Then in verse 29, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, and he does not regret, he does not relent. Okay. Verse 11 says he does, verse 35 says he does, and verse 29 says he doesn't. So the question, what does it mean to regret? What does it mean that God changed his mind? What does it mean that he, it looks and appears if he's changing a decision that he's already made? Now, there are theologians that take this passage, and what they do is, they will, there's a few of them out there, they will take this passage, and they will say that 
God is limited in his knowledge. God is limited in his knowledge. They say, yeah, God's smarter than man, but this passage shows that God was taken by surprise. Saul's rebellion was totally like, man, I did not see that coming, God is saying, and therefore I wish I had never done that. It's called open theism. It's a false theology. Uh, One of the main proponents is a guy named Gregory Boyd from Minnesota. It's a bad theology. It's a false theology. It's based on God is open... God's future is open. As he relates to humanity, he knows every possibility, but he does not know exactly what you will do until you do it. There are a lot of things wrong with that. Let me just give you one. The Bible. Proverbs 19, the plans, uh, many of the plans in the mind of man, but its purposes of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision of the Lord. One last one, Isaiah 46. I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all, not some, all my purposes. If the future is open to God, think about this. If the future is open to God and God is caught by surprise, what kind of God is that? Whether it's a little future or 99% of the future that is open, there's nothing then certain. Think about it. So we're just wasting our time trusting in Christ, believing on eternal life, believing on him having your sins forgiven, believing that he'll make everything broken right again if we're not sure because God's not sure. How do we know how it's going to end? Bad theology. So since God is sovereign and all his plans and holy purposes will come to pass, what does this mean? What does it say he does and he doesn't regret? Right? This, this, this narrative is not written by some crazy man, some schizophrenic. Like, oh, yeah, God, God really relents on making him, and then God never relents. Well, which one is it? When God uses language like this, listen, when he says, I regret, he is speaking in terms that we can understand as humans. It means that God really feels the pain of our current circumstances, but not that he is unaware of the circumstances or unaware of the future, somehow taken by surprise. Theologically, it's called anthropomorphism, which means there's the attributing human characteristics to God. $5 word for you. I'll give you another one. Anthropopathism. Attributing human feelings to God. It's done in order to show us, and the Bible used the language and the grammar showing us and teaching us and communicating to us truths about God. That's why that language is used. In one sense, God regrets, but certainly not in the same way humanity does. He, doesn't, he feels sadness and sorrow over decisions and, and, and harmful ways in which we go astray. But most certainly he doesn't share the prevalent human sentiment of, man, I wish I could go back and, and fix that. It's not that God has been caught unaware or that he is not part, that, that is not part of his sovereign plan. He's communicating to us, very important you understand, that he's not untouched by human sin. He's grieved. He is grieved by it. Even when God purposes that evil will play a part in his eternal plan, he doesn't enjoy it. It causes him grief. That's what it meant by in chapter 11 and 35. He sees and he grieves and he senses what we feel here and he's communicating us truth about himself. 
Verse 29 speaks of his eternal, sovereign nature and purposes. Dr. Derek Thomas writes this. Calvin, he said, would say that this is just an example of God accommodating himself to the paucity, smallness of our tiny, finite little minds. You see, we do not have a high priest who is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God is not some blind force out there, but he's touched with our finitude. What an extraordinary God we have, he says, who's intimately involved in the time, day-to-day, second-to-second, emotional, fluctuating lives that you and I have. And he says, yes, the Lord says, yes, I am here with you, imminent and in your midst, end quote. You see this, in Genesis 6, another time we see the same thing, that God relents. What does the Lord say? The wickedness is so great, Every intention of the thoughts of a heart are evil continually, and the Lord regrets that he made man on earth. He's grieved to his heart. God understands what we go through. One last quote, D.R. Davis, verse 11. He says, does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh's flustered over lack of foresight, but Yahweh's grieved over lack of obedience. Samuel was not the only one who mourned. The form Yahweh repenting in which the text communicates this truth is a bold one, and I agree. It was probably meant to get to be it was probably meant to be so to get our attention. We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. God is sovereign. God does not change his mind. And what you see is God is grieved entering into our understanding as Jesus was grieved and wept. God is sovereign. And as we turn, lastly, to Saul's lack of of repentance, he's heard the voice of God. He heard the command of God. His sin has been exposed. He confesses his failures, and he tries to consecrate his disobedience by Let's worship the Lord. All this is for God alone. But refuse to obey the voice of God. When, when Samuel doesn't buy his weak excuses, Saul finally confesses his sin, but he lays some of the blame on his people rather than repent. It's their fault. It's their fault. He claims that he feared the people more than he feared the Lord. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed against the commandments of the Lord and your words because, verse 24, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I obeyed their voice. I heard what they said and I followed through in what they told me. I heard the voice of the Lord, but you know what? I'm not following through that way. I'm not going that way. I'm going to fear others. I'm more concerned about my image. He, laps, he, he lacks a deep conviction concerning the vileness of his sin. He doesn't see sin as God sees it. And so he pleads with Samuel, go back and worship me. Again, trying to give appearance. Man, it's all about appearance. Verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said, verse 26, I'm not going. You rejected the word. The Lord rejected you. Verse 27. And Samuel turned to go away and Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Saul, look at verse 30 again. He didn't seek forgiveness. Look what it says in verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me before the elders of who? My people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord, what? Your God. My people, your God. Religious, 
got it mixed up. Totally got it mixed up. It's about his own glory. He, he, he's, not, he's not seeking after God. He's not, he's not really pushing through and really repenting. I mean, he builds a monument to himself in Carmel in verse 12. I think I'll build a monument. Oh, look how pretty that looks. It's all about Saul. Verse 32, 1532 to close. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. He thought everything was good. Surely the bitterness has passed. No, it hasn't. Verse 33. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. The Hebrew word hacked, know what it means? Hacked. Chopped up. And then Samuel and Saul go their separate ways. So as you move into communion, are you playing religion? Are you like Saul and your heart is in rebellion against God? You know God's word. You know what God has declared. Today's the day of your salvation. You need a new heart. You need a heart that responds and wants to by the power of the spirit, by the work of the gospel, by the grace and mercy and love of the gospel to respond with joy to the God who rescued you and saved you by his grace alone and by his love alone. You can experience this love and this grace by humbly confessing and repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone and God will give you a new heart. You will not be perfectly obedient in this life. Stop trying in a sense of gaining access to God. Do it out of joy, out of love, out of gratitude, out of, out of, out of love of the gospel. Respond to the loving Jesus Christ, that's what God is calling us to. That, that's the proper way, is it not? Saul's life was made you king and now spiraling down. The gospel is the opposite. We're down and we spiral up. James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the proper way to come to God. Instead of going up and then down, you go down then up. You humble yourself before God, confessing your sin, your need of a savior, and God will lift you up. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus emptied himself, taken on a form of a sermon, the likeness of men, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and therefore, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven, in the earth, under the earth, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. The gospel declares that the perfect obedience of Jesus' life and his perfect obedience of his wrath-atoning death is the only means of our salvation. And because of that, we respond. Obedience is a, re- a response of love for what Christ has done. And this communion table is for the family of God. It represents the body that was broken, the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. Maybe you've never accepted Christ. Today's the day where you recognize you're a sinner. And that you are under the judgment, the right judgment of God. And that Jesus bore your sins. Jesus went to the cross and died for you. Then come to the table. If you're not a follower of Christ, then just sit back and worship and and sing with the band. But if today's the day of your salvation, come. But maybe you're here, you're a believer, and there's something going on in your life that you have held on to. And God is calling you today to repent. To confess what you said is true, what you said is right. And now I'm going to turn from that. Trusting you, give me the power, give me the grace, give me the love. And I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm laying down. I'm laying down my idols. I'm laying down my rebellion. Wherever you're at, whether it's the first time or the second time, or, or it's a continuation as a Christian, let's lay down our rebellion. And let's take of the bread, 
Let's take of the cup and let's celebrate the forgiveness of God. Father, thank you for this narrative. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you enter into our pain. Thank you that you care and love us enough to send your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Thank you, Father, that you give us a heart not of stone, but of the flesh of, of soft work of you in the spirit, through the, through the spirit in our souls, Lord. We pray, Lord, that today, right now, you would pour out your spirit upon us. Those who don't know you will know you. Those who are cold toward you will be, will be open and responsive to you, Lord. We pray that you would get the glory in all things, that we would respond in obedience because of everything you have done on our behalf that we could never, ever do ourselves. But Lord, out of love for you, we respond in obedience, laying down our disobedience and coming every day, every moment, back to the cross. Well, that is all we have, Lord, is your work through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.